Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thanks, Kurt, for leading us in prayer and for your prayers for the message. Uh, please open your Bibles to the third chapter of Genesis. I have to admit, I feel a little pressure to bring my A game today after that video, but um, I don't know if you can count on that, but you can count on what the scripture says, which is that the word of God will not return to him empty without accomplishing what he desires. We can count on that. And so we're going to be looking in some detail here, Genesis 3, 8 through 13. be very helpful if you had a Bible um, to follow along today. So if you don't have one, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those, open it to page 2. Genesis 3, 8 through 13, every now and then an incident will come along that absolutely changes everything. Uh, For me personally, I remember when my father died in December 2002, it it changed everything. There was nothing quite the same after that in our family. Uh, Most of you remember 9-11, that changed everything for our nation. Nothing has been quite the same in America since then. And of course, today we're thinking about the Reformation, and the Reformation is certainly an event that changed everything in the church. Nothing has been quite the same in the church since the Reformation, 503 years ago. And today we're continuing to look at this account here in Genesis chapter 3 of an event that changed everything throughout all of human history. This event in Genesis 3 was a radical departure from the way things were, and nothing has been the same since. So I want you to notice that I included this mention of Genesis chapter 3 along with all these other events that we all know are historical because we believe the events of Genesis 3 are historical events. This is not a fable. It's not a myth. This is something that really happened in history. And as a result of this event, nothing has been the same. I think pretty much everybody would agree, Christian or non-Christian, that there's something wrong with the world. The world is broken, that there's enough misery and sadness and tragedy in the world to tell us that something isn't right. And so a lot of people look at the world, and for that reason, they will turn away from their belief in God. Many people will say this, I cannot believe in a God who would create a world like this. It's a very common argument from an atheist. But here's a question that I would like to ask you if you think that way. How can something go wrong if it wasn't right to begin with? How can something be broken if it wasn't not broken? How can something be crooked if it wasn't straight? Right? The word crooked depends on the meaning of the word straight. The word fallen, broken, whatever word we want to use to describe the condition of the world, presupposes that there was a time when it was right. And that's what the Bible is telling us here. There was a time when everything was right. That was described for us here in chapters 1 and 2. That's what we've been looking at in this sermon series on Genesis over the last several weeks. God created the world upright, perfect. Adam and Eve placed them in the garden, a place called paradise, No sin, no evil, no death. Everything was just right. But then we read Genesis 3 and we see that what was straight became crooked. And what was just right 
became broken. And the reason this is of such interest to us is because this isn't an isolated event that occurred centuries ago. This is something that has passed down through history and affects all of us today. And I think you'll see that as we read this passage this morning. So Genesis 3, 8 through 13. Uh, if you're able, please stand. Let me read this text to us. <clears throat> what we're seeing here are the immediate effects of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. What happened immediately after that, and we're going to see there's very personal, intimate effects as a result of their disobedience. So Genesis 3, starting with verse 8. And they, that's referring to Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Holy Spirit, again, we ask for you to come and please illumine our minds and give wisdom to our hearts to receive by faith what your word teaches us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so here's this event that changes everything. And there are a couple of new problems now that enter into the historical situation as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And the first is the problem of shame. The problem of shame. So the setting here, again, is in the garden where we left off last time. Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent has come, has deceived Eve, and Eve ate, and then Eve gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate. And so they're still there in the garden, and God has kind of been, you know, in the background in those first seven verses of chapter 3. didn't hear much from God, but now all of a sudden Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they begin to hear footsteps. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now we've just had Halloween, maybe some of you have been watching horror movies, and you know a very typical scene in a horror movie is the person sitting there in the dark room, and, and he or she you know, begins to hear footsteps coming up the steps or coming down the steps, and you get that foreboding feeling of terror. Who is this entering into the home? And that's the same kind of feeling that's being presented here. There's a, a feeling of terror that strikes into the hearts of Adam and Eve when they hear the footsteps of God. And that's a very sad thing, a very sad thing. Here is one way in which everything has now changed. Adam and Eve don't relate to God in friendly fellowship anymore. They relate to God primarily in fear. They know they're guilty. They're under his condemnation, and here's the new normal. No more approaching God without fear, but fleeing, fleeing from him, hiding from him. You'll see that in verse 8. When they hear the footsteps, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God <clears throat> among the trees of the garden. Anything but facing this God who they know they have offended. 
And this has now been passed down through the ages, and this characterizes much of the human race. People fleeing from God, running away from him, unable to face him, knowing they're under his condemnation. And maybe that describes you today. One person that that described was Martin Luther. We've been hearing about that through Pastor Brian a little so far about Reformation Day. Martin Luther is kind of the main figure of the Reformation. It was a lot more people involved than just him, but uh, every Reformation Day we talk a little bit about Luther. His experience is very instructive for us. You might remember me telling the story, but um, Luther was a very unusual guy, and he constantly struggled with feelings of insufficiency before God, feeling like he's under his condemnation, constantly fleeing, hiding from God. Um, He never felt like he could do enough, and he was always on this treadmill of trying to do more to get God's attention and get God's love and to merit his forgiveness. He would pray for long periods of time, but then he'd feel guilty because he wondered, did he really mean it? He would go to the priest and confess sin, sometimes six hours a day, and then realize that he missed chapel while he was confessing sins, and he'd feel guilty about missing chapel, and now he'd have to add that to the list of things he had to confess. He felt guilty for laughing. He felt guilty because he didn't sing well enough. These are all things that in Luther's mind placed him under God's condemnation, and he eventually said this, This is Luther looking back on his life. He was a German monk, by the way, and a very faithful monk. And so he says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Luther hated God. And you can see that all throughout our society today since the fall of man in the garden, people hating God, filled with resentment toward him, mostly because they feel that they're under his condemnation and full of guilt. Well, that's why the Reformation is so important. God used Luther to recover the sweetness of the gospel because Luther came to understand that the gospel was not a list of things that he had to do to present to God for his forgiveness but that it was exactly the opposite. The gospel is a list of things that God has done for us so that we can be forgiven. It's entirely the work of God. It's not our work for him, it's his work for us. And when Luther came to understand that, he said, I felt like I entered into paradise. I've been relieved of the guilt and condemnation that have been hanging over me. And we believe that in the Reformation, that full grace of the gospel was recovered, that it was lost and obscured for centuries before the Reformation but that God in his grace recovered it for us. And that's why we make such a big deal out of this holiday every year. But we see the beginnings of this fear of God in what is happening here with Adam and Eve. Fleeing from God, hearing his footsteps, hearts filled with terror. But it's not just this guilt. There's something else going on here, and it's the presence of shame. And I think that's a main theme of what we're seeing here, and I'll show you why I conclude that. Go back to chapter 2, verse 25. And it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is before the fall, before their disobedience. They're in the garden. They're naked. They feel no shame. And yet in verse 7 of chapter 3, we didn't read that earlier, but verse 7, 
right after they eat the fruit, it says the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. Well, they were naked and not ashamed just a little while ago. Now they're naked and they have to sew fig leaves together and make loincloths to cover them because they're ashamed. Now shame has entered into their hearts and their souls and they feel ashamed before God and that's part of what makes them flee from God. That's what we do in our shame. We flee from God. We flee from others too. We hide. The result of shame is hiding. There's an interesting connection between nakedness and shame. Maybe you've had this dream before, you know, where you're sitting in the, in the classroom or the workplace and things are going along fine and then all of a sudden you realize you're naked. Have you ever had that dream? Oh my goodness, you look down, you're naked and of course you're humiliated and totally embarrassed and it's more like a nightmare than a dream. Um, but some <clears throat> observers, scientists will say that that dream can be an indication that you're carrying some, some shame. There's something shameful in your life, and it's being exposed. That's what's happening to Adam. His guilt is being exposed. We could maybe say that there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is tied up more in what you've done, while shame is tied up more in who you are. Guilt is, I have committed a sin. Shame, <coughs> excuse me, shame is, I am a sinner. Shame is what follows guilt. Adam has disobeyed God. He's guilty. But then following that guilt is like this dark cloud of shame that then haunts Adam and haunts you and I who are also guilty before God's law. One writer said this, that guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. The scar that we carry with us. Many of us are carrying deep levels of shame. There are different kinds of shame. And I think it's very helpful to kind of think through this because some shame is legitimate and some isn't. Some shame is committed to what we have done. That's right, the, the guilt of our actions, just like Adam here. He disobeyed God's law, and so there's kind of an appropriateness to the shame. He should, felt, should have felt ashamed because it dis, he disobeyed God's law. In fact, one of the problems in our culture and society today is that people don't feel shame. You know, that's an issue. People just do whatever they want and they're not ashamed at all. This is what Jeremiah the prophet anticipated many centuries ago talking about Israel. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. <laughs> what an accurate description of so much of our society today. People that don't even blush at the sins that they commit. So it's appropriate for some shame, level of shame, to be connected to sins that you have done. But there are other kinds of shame. Sometimes people feel shame not because of what they have done, but because of what others have done to them. And so you might feel ashamed because you had a parent or a boss or a coach or a teacher who regularly humiliated and embarrassed you, constantly held you up for ridicule, told you over and over and over again that you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And that's a hard thing to carry. And many of us are carrying shame that is based on what others have done to us. Those who have suffered sexual, emotional, physical abuse also often carry with them shame, even though it's not anything that you've done, but you feel ashamed about this. Um, and then others feel ashamed, not because of what they did or what others did, but kind of what, because of what God did. 
That is that God made them a certain way, maybe. And so some of us feel ashamed because we're not as pretty as the next girl or not as strong as the next guy or we're not as smart. We're too tall. We're too short. God made us physically in a certain way and and we feel ashamed and we hide and we run away because of the way God made us. That also is not connected to anything that, that you've done. So I think it's helpful to think through this as you consider the shame that you might be carrying. Is it something that God did? I mean, is it the way God made you? Are you ashamed of the way you look or your intelligence level? Uh, you know, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what the scriptures say. There's no shame in the way God made you. You should learn to be content with that. We're all struggling with that. But learn to be content with who God made you to be. There's no shame in who God made you to be. But there's also no reason for you to feel shameful about what others might have done to you. If someone has abused you, humiliated you, the guilt is theirs, not yours. You're not guilty for what others have done to you. And you don't need to bear that guilt or bear that shame. But if it's something that you did, and and you know you have willfully disobeyed the word of God, and you're carrying shame for that, well, there's a way to deal with that, and that is to not hide from God, to not run from him, but to flee to Jesus, to go to him and ask for his forgiveness and lay your shame down at the foot of the cross. Here's what Hebrews 12 tells us. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of it, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How is shame connected to the cross? Well, on the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself our shame. He's not talking about his shame that he's despising. It's the shame of us laid on him, the shame of a death on the cross. Jesus will remove your shame. I love that stanza in the song by you 2 I still haven't found what I'm looking for, where Bono sings, you broke the bonds, you loosened the chains, you carried the cross, and all my shame. Jesus carries your shame, so leave it with him. So there's the problem of shame, but that's not the only thing that changed here. That's not the only significant issue that was altered as a result of the fall. There's also the problem of blame. Who is to blame for the problem in the world? Who's to blame for why everything went wrong? And that's what we're going to look at now. We've got this divine confrontation between Adam and God. God has questions for Adam here. And and notice what mercy there is in this, that God doesn't come entering into the garden pronouncing condemnation immediately. He comes asking some questions. He's careful in the way he investigates the situation. He's merciful. He's patient. But I want you to notice who it is that God approaches. I think this is instructive, something we should take note of. Who does God approach? Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Called to the man. He didn't call to Eve. Why would that be noteworthy? Because the serpent approached Eve. The serpent deceived Eve. 
Eve was the one who ate from the tree. Wouldn't we be prone to say, this is really Eve's fault? Well, if it were Eve's fault, why didn't God approach Eve? God called to the man. And the reason why is because God held Adam responsible for his wife. Because God had placed Adam in a position of authority over his wife. That's why. Later in Romans 5, we read that sin entered the world through the one man, through Adam. Not through Eve, but through Adam. And so we're seeing something interesting about the way Satan works. You know, he's kind of subverting the whole authority structure that God has set up here. Adam and Eve are supposed to be in dominion over the animals. Well, the serpent is an animal. Now you have the serpent coming up, subverting Eve's authority. But the serpent goes to Eve and not Adam, circumventing Adam's authority. And so a guy named Warren Gage sums this up really well. He says, Satan mocks the divine order of government designing to rule the woman by the serpent and then the man by the woman. He will attempt, he will tempt Eve away from Adam that she might tempt Adam away from God. So there is an authority structure set up here that is being subverted by the serpent's efforts. But for our purposes this morning, let's think about how Adam responds to this. This is really key. How does Adam respond to God's questioning? And um, what we see here is that Adam is not going to take the blame. <laughs> he, he just, he is not going to do it. And he's going to try to flee from it to get, to, to, to get away from it. And at least two ways. One here is, first of all, he hides his guilt. We know that Adam is the one who disobeyed God's law, but he hides it first by fleeing. We already saw that. He and Eve fled into the forest. But if you look at verse 9, when God asks Adam, where are you? Verse 10, then, Adam responds, and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself, he says. So Adam knows he's in trouble, but even though what he says here is true, as far as it goes, he is naked, but really, that's not really the issue, is it? I mean, he's not really hiding because of his nakedness. That's part of it. But the real reason he's hiding from God is because he just disobeyed him. He just willfully rejected God's command. And he's guilty, and he knows he deserves God's condemnation. That's why he's guilty. But he kind of hides that. Yeah, it's because I'm naked. It's a half-truth. I think he learned that from the serpent. It's not the whole truth. So he kind of hides his guilt here, but you know, that doesn't really work. God doesn't buy it. He keeps asking questions, and then we find that he excuses his guilt. So in a very clever way, he blame shifts in verse 12. Look what um, the man says after God asks this question in verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Another question. And now here's Adam's response. Verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. <laughs> so first of all, he's going to shift the blame to the woman. The woman did it. The woman gave me the fruit. The implication is it's her fault. But also notice, very, in a very sly way, the woman whom you gave me, God. If it isn't the woman's fault, 
then it's your fault, God. But in Adam's mind, here's one thing for sure. It's not my fault. Not my fault. He is not going to own up to this. And Eve does the same thing, actually. You look at verse 13. The Lord God says to the woman, what have you done? And what does she say? The serpent deceived me. And I ate. It's the serpent's fault. You know, the devil made me do it. You've heard that cliche. Here's where it comes from. I didn't do it. The devil made me do it. So who's to take the blame? Who's to take, you know, who, who, who is to blame for the things that you've done in your life, for the messes that you've created in your life? Who's to blame? Have you spent your life thinking about other people's faults? I mean, we are masters at blame shifting, aren't we? We are masters at finding something else. Well, it was the weather. It was too cold. I didn't get sleep last night. I didn't eat very well. I had a hard day at work. My wife said this. My husband did that. My kids did this. All of these things, all these external things, it's their fault. It's all their fault. It's not mine. And if we're not blaming somebody else, we're sometimes blaming God himself. An ABC News survey years ago found out that two-thirds of Americans blame God for all of their troubles. It's all God's fault. Maybe you've seen the show Seinfeld, the sitcom from years ago. There's a character, George Costanza, in that show, and he's a very uh, kind of cynical, neurotic guy, and he's talking to his therapist, and he says to his therapist, he says, you know, God would never let me be successful. And the therapist says, I thought you didn't believe in God. And he says, well, I do for the bad stuff. I do for the bad stuff. Sure, when bad things happen, we believe in God because we can blame him. But how often when good things happen are we rushing to give God thanks and praise and honor and glory for the good things that he has done? This is classic thinking of the unbeliever, blaming God for the bad, not giving him credit for the good. Um, what what an interesting little proverb this is, Proverbs 19. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. <laughs> It's his own folly that ruined his life, but he's mad at God. Are you mad at God today for things that you've done? Now, we should acknowledge there are occasions when sometimes God sends trouble to us in a way that is completely disconnected from anything we've done. That's true. It's not like every trouble, every difficulty that you have in your life is related to some sin that you've done. That's not what I'm saying. The whole book of Job is about that. Job is a righteous, blameless man, and yet God sends him a lot of trouble. So I don't want you to misunderstand, but let's remember what James says here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. In other words, let no one say, this is you, God. You're doing it. It's your fault. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. John Wooden was a great coach of UCLA basketball years ago, and as a coach and a leader, he said, here's what I recommend. When things go well, you give credit to others. When things go bad, you take the blame. And speaking from the perspective of a leader, he was saying, you know, regardless of whether you as a leader did it or not, you take the blame. And you might say, why in the world would I take the blame for something I didn't do? Well, do you know that's exactly what Jesus Christ did? Took the blame for something he didn't do so that you and I 
could go to him without fear and bring all of those things for which were very blameworthy and look to him for pardon and forgiveness. So the problem of blame, this has plagued humankind forever. Blame shifting, refusing to take responsibility for what we've done. But the last thing we see here is that there is the blessing of grace. The blessing of grace. We see God here is asking a lot of questions. Have you noticed that? Uh, In this passage, verse 9, where are you? Um, Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Verse 13, what is this that you have done? Now, let's be clear here. God's not looking for information here. It's not like he doesn't know the answers to these questions. It's not like he doesn't know what Adam did or doesn't know where Adam is. He's not ignorant of these things. So what, what is God doing? Well, these are rhetorical questions that God is asking. God is inviting Adam and Eve to fess up, to be honest, to confess their sins. This is an act of mercy on God's part. He wants them to acknowledge what they've done, and so he's asking these questions. In Genesis 3.15, which we'll get to next week, we're going to see the very first declaration of the gospel. But what we're seeing here are the very first hints of grace in the heart of God for his wayward children. These people have just disobeyed him blatantly and defiantly. God certainly would have the right to destroy them right on the spot. He would certainly have the right to ignore them. That would be another option for God. You know, I'm done with you guys, and he just leaves them alone. But he doesn't destroy them, and he doesn't ignore them. He pursues them. He goes after them. That's grace, friends. God goes after wayward, defiant sinners. This, I think, is probably the essence of Christian ministry. It's the pursuit of people you'd rather ignore. The pursuit of people you'd rather destroy. (laughs) Going after those who need grace. The estranged friend or brother or sister in in your life, the lonely neighbor down the street, the um, distant, disconnected spouse under your roof, the defiant, committed unbeliever in your classroom or in your workplace, and you think they would never listen to what you have to say, and so you've just written them off. The heart of God pursues. God is always on pursuit for sinners, and if we worship this God, we should be in pursuit as well. Look, there's this story that Jesus tells, Matthew 18. Do you remember the story of the man who has a hundred sheep and he loses one? One goes astray. And you can imagine that man just reasoning, you know, it's just one, I've still got 99. What's the big deal? Just let the one go and let's just keep the 99. But that's not what the man does, is it? He leaves the 99 and pursues the one. And when he finds that one sheep, he rejoices because he went on the pursuit to find the wayward sheep. Friends, this is the true gospel. It's not a God hiding up in the clouds and people pursuing him. It's people hiding from God and God pursuing them. That's the gospel. God is in pursuit of of people who flee from him. This is what the scripture says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He came in pursuit of us, friends. If you're a Christian today, I I hope you know that 
You're not a Christian because you've been spending your whole life pursuing God. You're a Christian because God has been spending your whole life pursuing you. And actually, even more than that, God set his heart on you before the foundation of the world, choosing you and electing you to salvation. In history, then, he sent his son into the world to die for your sins. And in your life, he sent the Holy Spirit then to open your eyes and your heart when the gospel came to you and you believed. These are all the result of God's initiating work. Not your initiating work. God has pursued you. What a great God it is that we worship, friends. What a great God of grace. Isn't it so good that our salvation isn't dependent upon our pursuit of him? What trouble we would be in if that were the case. But friends, if you're not a Christian today, it could be that God is pursuing you right now. He might be pursuing you this very moment. Maybe he's been pursuing you your entire life. That person at work or school who keeps talking to you about the gospel, the things that you come across reading that present to you the gospel, the fact that you're here this morning right now. Maybe God is pursuing you. What will you do? Let me urge you, don't flee. Don't hide. Bow the knee to Jesus. Receive him as your savior. Repent of your sin. Believe upon his name You will be reconciled to your creator. You will be a new creation in Christ. And I promise you, everything will change. Everything will change for your good and for the glory of God. Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for not destroying us, but for coming after us in your son. These things we pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.